This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. In this episode, I'm responding to a listener who asked me the question, why I'm still a Baptist? And the question is, is there, uh, is there a set of reasons why I would be uh, committed to the, the Baptist expression of the church and the Baptist tradition uh, within the church? And, uh, and I thought that was a good question. And the reason it's a good question is because I was somebody who was reared in a Baptist church but someone who was reared in a Baptist church in a largely Roman Catholic community. And I had two sides of my family. One side of the family was evangelical, and the other side of the family was Roman Catholic. So I grew up with a, a deep appreciation of Roman Catholics. My mother's side of the family was, was Catholic, and really an important part of my, of my life and of my development, as were the, the people in my community who were my, my Catholic friends and, and neighbors. And I was somebody who went through a time in late adolescence and early years of college where I really tried to figure out where I was in terms of, of my identity within the church. And so I, I saw a lot of, of really ugly things uh, that, that went on within Baptist churches. And so there was a, a time where I was, as, as I think many people do, searching for the place where I could get beyond all of that. And so I, would, I spent some time really looking into uh, Presbyterianism and Catholicism and Methodism and Lutheranism and, and, and various other uh, Christian denominations. And one of the things that I very quickly discovered was that there is no romantic way out from human depravity, that all of the churches and all of the communions all have uh, are all made up of people who are sinners and all are going to have tensions and problems and ridiculous things that, that go on. As a matter of fact, when one looks at the New Testament, one of the great blessings of the New Testament is, uh, is the revelation that church life has always been filled with these sorts of uh, divisions and struggles. I mean, right, right back to the church at Corinth, the churches in Galatia and Thessalonica and elsewhere, there's, there's consistent uh, rebuke that is coming to churches for the immorality or uh, divisiveness or, or fighting or apathy, all of those things are present there, and they're present in every single communion. And so I work uh, with people of all different traditions, kind of in concentric circles. So I work with people who are other evangelical Protestants 
in in other uh, denominations, uh, Presbyterians and Lutherans and uh, Bible church people and, and what have you. And then I work with, in a kind of a circle beyond that, with uh, other Protestants along with Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. And one of the things that I find is we all, when we're honest with one another, we all have problems. <laughs> every, every one of us have problems in terms of our church traditions. That's what it means to live in a, in a fallen world. But I, I spent some time investigating all of those things, and I ended up a convictional Baptist. And, and, and I didn't end up there because I was assuming those things. I really did want to talk myself out of that as, uh, as a, a very young man. But I came back to uh, what I believe are biblical convictions about the church. So here's what I believe and why I still am in the Baptist tradition. And that, that is in no way a castigation of people who are in other traditions and other communions. I, I think one of the reasons why God has allowed the church to have these different voices uh, within different denominations is precisely because of the way that those emphases remind the rest of the body of Christ about certain essential points. Uh, Richard Mao has a book uh, coming out that, uh, that I read in the galleys where he, he talks about different denominational traditions almost as monastic orders uh, within the Roman Catholic Church. And what these monastic orders would do is each of them would have a particular area of emphasis that would carry that forward for the rest of the church. And the same tends to be true within our denominational life. So Lutherans have a, as Mao put it, they've taken a monastic vow to remind the rest of the church that justification is through faith alone and not by the works of the law. Pentecostals have taken a monastic vow in his view to remind the rest of the church that the Holy Spirit is active and, and, and we, should, we should seek the, the power and the, and the gifts of, of the Spirit. And the Presbyterian tradition has taken a monastic vow to remind the rest of, of the church of a rich and deep uh, theological tradition. And the Baptist tradition has taken a monastic vow to, to really emphasize the necessity of personal regeneration generation and then how that how that plays out into a believer's church. And so that's where I have ended up. I believe that this is what the Bible teaches for, for a number of reasons. One of them because I think the Bible teaches that there is no church that cannot lose its lampstand. In the early uh, chapters of, of Revelation, Jesus is speaking to the churches, and he's, he's warning about the loss of that lampstand, the loss of the, the presence of, of Jesus. So I believe that the church will always exist, and the church will always advance, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. But no particular church is guaranteed survival. And so I think that means a constant renewing of what it means to be biblical. So I'm Baptist ultimately because of implications of the gospel itself, that we, John 3, come into the kingdom of God, not nation by nation or family by family, tribe by tribe. We come into the kingdom of God person by person. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's essential to my understanding of what it means to be a Baptist, is the necessity of personal repentance and faith, the necessity of of the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit upon the person. Now, there are all sorts of other evangelical Christian uh, communions who believe that, 
but I'm a Baptist because of the way that I think that is applied to other doctrines. So, for instance, the nature of the church. What does it mean to be baptized into the body of Christ? I do think that there is a connection, just as as other denominations will make a connection between baptism and circumcision. I think there is a, a connection there, but the connection is not a baptism that comes upon everyone who is born into a Christian family in the way that I see it. I think instead, the connection is everyone who is born into the people of God. And how are we born into the people of God? It is not, John chapter 1, by the will of the flesh, but by the power of the Spirit. We're, we're born into the people of God as those who experience the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. And so we, we mark out the boundaries of the church on the basis of who are the people who constitute those living stones, as Peter calls it, the, the, the ones who, who build up a temple of the Holy Spirit made of those whose hearts have been washed with the regenerating power of uh, the Spirit of God. I, I think that that definition of the church is biblical, it, it fits with the, the pattern of the early church, and it also is based on that understanding of the gospel. I think beyond that, the, the way that the church is run. So the, the New Testament talks about Ephesians chapter 1, for instance, Jesus as ruling over his church. He has put him as head over all things over his church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who is all in all, who fills all things. That's, that is a picture of the church, which is why we have in the New Testament letters that are sometimes delivered to uh, leaders within the church, Timothy or uh, Titus, uh, for instance. Sometimes letters that are, that are written to individuals who are lay people, uh, as it were, within the church. Philemon, uh, for instance, is, is one of those. But then we have many letters that are written to entire congregations, to the church at Rome, to the church at Ephesus, to the church at Corinth, to the, the churches of the dispersion. And in those letters, the directives that are being given are not only to the elders or the pastors or the leaders, although sometimes there is a specific word for them, but to the entire body of Christ. So when it comes to church discipline, for instance, maintaining the boundaries of the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, or the decision-making that goes on in settling issues within the church in 1 Corinthians 6. That's given to the entire congregation. Uh, That's one of the reasons why I'm I'm a congregationalist. Now, in that, I have to tell you, I'm somebody who wanted not to be a congregationalist, because I've seen congregationalism go really awry, and it's really easy to go awry. Because when, when one has a, a congregation where there is uh, suspicion between the people and the leaders or uh, in a congregation where there is a, a congregational government that is patterned after American government uh, with highly bureaucratized and easily swayed with popular movements, and you end up with a defective form of, of congregationalism. But I think the way that we avoid that is not by uh, circumventing congregationalism. It's instead by seeing the congregation as the, the ultimate authority uh, under the lordship of Jesus Christ 
and the, the leadership of the Holy Spirit, and also seeing the necessity of the teaching office and a, a leadership within the congregation that does not devolve into every decision being made by the congregation. A, a, a congregation need not make every decision in order to govern the church in the same way that as, as parents, uh, my wife and I have ultimate accountability for what goes on in our home, but we don't make every decision for our children. Uh, we, we don't make every decision about the things that take place uh, in our household, but we're ultimately accountable. If if you come into my house and I say to you, well, yeah, I can't believe that my, my child is over there smoking weed and uh, drinking Jack Daniels. Well, I mean, ultimately, I have accountability for that. A congregation has ultimate accountability for what takes place within a congregation, even if the congregation doesn't make all of those of those decisions on a routine basis. It can. The congregation can, ultimately. And then I'm a Baptist because of the way that I see the relationship between the church and the world. The sharp distinction that the Apostle Paul makes between the outside world and the accountability on the inside uh, in the congregation of, of believers who are, who are held accountable for their belief and for their discipleship, and for the, the way in which the outside world is not then governed by the church. So I think that the Baptist principle of religious freedom, that the gospel advances through spirit-empowered persuasion, not through government coercion, not through cultural pressure, is an important corollary of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those separate realms between the church and the world, between the church and the state, where if the state attempts to do the work of the church, the state turns into something uh, that at best the state has no competence to do, at worst the state is becoming antichrist. And the church, when it attempts to, to govern the, the world through the state, through the power of coercion, uh, the church becomes at best a group of people who are incompetent to do this because we've not been gifted uh, to, to govern uh, the world now as kings. As Paul says to the church at Corinth, you act as though you've already become kings and you should have told me so that I could come and reign with you, he says sarcastically. And at worst, the church turns the gospel of Jesus Christ in that scenario into a, a political power move that is more satanic than it is Christian. And so I think that Baptist emphasis is, is good and right. Now, I know that my listeners are of all sorts of denominational traditions, and we can learn from one another even, even where we disagree. And I think this is one of those things where our distinctiveness— in our in our various uh, in our various communions and our various traditions, isn't something we ought to boil away as kind of least common denominator. And even though we we agree, you know, evangelical Christians of all sorts of of communions, we can come together and say we agree on the gospel of Jesus Christ. We agree on what it means to be a Christian, but let's not evaporate those distinctions because we need them. Uh, we need them not only to make decisions about how to order our churches. We also need them in order to sharpen one another. 
We really need the Lutherans to continue to stand up and say, let's distinguish between the law and gospel. And we need the Presbyterians to continually stand up and say, yes, yes, but let's not forget about the third use of the law. And we need the Anglicans to consistently stand up and say, let's remember the importance of, of, of worship and, and order. And I think we need the Baptists to continually stand up and say, let's remember how we come into the kingdom of God, and that's through the personal regenerating power of the Holy Spirit and through the witness of a church that is made up of believers. Now, none of those traditions have ever lived up to their ideals. And as a Baptist, I will tell you, we often don't live up to our ideals. The The idea of a believer's church has often been eclipsed in places where Baptists are uh, the majority in a culture. That's one of the reasons why we see the, the kind of cultural nominal Christianity that we, we have had for so long in the Bible Belt is because there's been a cultural pressure, not a state-enforced pressure, but a cultural pressure to conform to a Baptist subculture. So if you're 12 years old and you haven't been baptized, there's a, a sense of what's going on with your parents uh, instead of a, a sense of highlighting what it means individual by individual to experience personal faith and repentance and for the church to be made up only of professing believers. That's an emphasis I think we not only need to hold on to within the Baptist tradition, I think it's something that our brothers and sisters in other traditions need us to emphasize even when they don't completely disagree with us. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.